Isn't that enough candy for you now, Matt? No. No, no. Oh, come on, seriously. We're, we're supposed to do the podcast. I, I think you've had enough. Oh. Who are you, my wife? Nah, I'm just trying to look after your health. Yeah, see? You sound just like her. Don't you think two glasses of wine is enough, darling? Well, for some mm. people, two glasses of wine would be adequate. Adequate? Meaning an acceptable quantity. Or quality. Well, surely that's different for different people. Everybody knows when they've eaten enough for dinner, for example. But not not everyone stops eating when when that happens. Some people overeat, and it's it's bad for them. Some people need to be told what's adequate. You mean they they need to have rules? And it's not just people either. It's also banks. They need rules for what's adequate. So they don't eat all your money. Uh, kind of. The the rules are to do with how much capital they need to keep available in case things go wrong. It's called capital adequacy. And no doubt, capital adequacy, that's what we're talking about on this podcast, right? It is. Uh-huh. Mm. So you go ahead and introduce the episode while I suck on this jolly rancher. I beg your pardon? Oh, never mind. I'll do it. On this episode... Of a dictionary of finance, we're joined by Vincent Tunis, a risk management expert at the European Investment Bank. We'll be learning about capital adequacy. Hey, get your hand out of my candy bowl. You may remember the Bank Vincent game from a couple of weeks ago on a dictionary of finance podcast, where uh, one of the European Investment Bank's top risk managers came in and played uh, a game that was very revealing. It, it revealed a lot about our characters, didn't it, Alar? It, it showed that you were a very deeply conservative and, uh, and sensible character. Exactly, and you um, were just reckless with, uh, I was, with cash. I was insane. I was a credit risk. I was an interest rate risk. I was, I was everything but a liquidity risk, although I, maybe I caused one. I don't yeah. remember. Anyway, you'll have to go back and listen to that podcast to find out uh, exactly how reckless I am. Uh, but talking of reckless, Vincent Tunus has come back on the podcast. That's really, uh, you know, he's clearly not managing his risk here. He's, he's back. He's ready brave. to, yeah, he's ready to, to take the risk. So, Vincent, thanks for coming back on You're the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, the subject of this podcast is capital adequacy. But before we talk about capital adequacy, we have to actually know what capital is. Indeed. So, well, capital for a bank is like capital for any corporate. It's basically the money that the owners of a corporate or a bank have put into into the company. And the, and so so to get kind of started on on the on the need for capital adequacy, uh, we have to look at. We have to look at the company as a as a balance sheet. That's the two sides of uh, of a balance sheet. And what's what's interesting in a, in the context of a bank, which is different from regular corporates, is that uh, loans for a bank are assets. They're not liabilities. Well, but the general concept is is the same. I mean, you hold capital to protect your creditors. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a bank, let's imagine that I've received 100 euros of deposits and I basically want to invest those deposits into assets, loans, for example. Let's assume that I just want to extend 10 loans of 10 10 euros each. 
well, obviously, I will be able to basically reimburse the depositors if I'm paid back if I'm paid back myself from all the people to whom I've uh, lent the money. So now let's imagine that out of the ten loans that I've extended, uh, one client is not able to pay back. Then I'm left with ninety euros. And of course, at some point in time, the depositors will ask for the 100 euros. So in that case, I don't know if, if I don't have any buffer in terms of, of, of capital, because that's the purpose, I will not be able to meet my obligations. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the purpose of capital is really to have a buffer against an expected event so that I can indeed honor, mm-hmm. uh, honor my obligations to, mm-hmm. to the creditors. But now, you say that it's an unexpected event, which you know it is. But still, there's there's a way for you to expect how much that's gonna be, and how, a, so 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 that's that's what's very fascinating is that you uh, you expect uh, you know out of that hundred euros in loans that you've given out, how much do you really expect to lose? How much capital do you need to um, to, to need to keep keep for uh, for those losses? I think it's a very good question because the distinction between expected and unexpected loss is, is, is key. So coming back to my example, let's imagine that I know that in average I may lose uh, 10%. So what I could do is just ask for remuneration to cover that risk. And when I ask for interest, I would ask not to pay back 10 euros mm-hmm. only, but let's say 11.1 mm-hmm. euros. Mm-hmm. So that if 9 out of 10 of my borrowers uh, fulfill their obligation, including interest, then I mm-hmm. will get back my 100 mm-hmm. uh, euros and I will be able to pay back. So mm-hmm. it means that I can calibrate the interest I will charge on the basis of my expected loss. Mm-hmm. But still, I mean, it's just statistics. It remains random. So now let's imagine that there is a second borrower defaulting, mm-hmm. then I'm still in the same problem. So I mm-hmm. wouldn't be unable to, to pay you back. So in essence, I have basically to estimate how much unexpected loss, like a second default, a third default, a fourth default. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you can put the limit where you want, depending mm-hmm. on how conservative you want to be, um, and figure out how much capital I need to hold to protect my creditors. Wow. So in, a, in, a, in addition to expecting expected losses you're also expecting unexpected losses yeah at least we know that an expected loss may happen so so you need essentially in case things go wrong you need to have enough capital to cover that so so that's where the the word adequacy comes in you have to have adequate capital enough capital to cover those potential losses but how do you figure that out well, it's basically based on some calculation. So you try to measure the risk that you take. And typically, people will try to estimate with a certain probability how much capital you may, you may lose in some circumstances. So in my example, two, three, four, five, six defaults, obviously a scenario where we will have six borrowers out of 10 defaulting is, is probably not very likely. Mm-hmm. but maybe a second default is, is more likely. So depending on how the level of confidence I want to have um, in, in my estimation of risks, I will, I will put uh, aside the, the, size of the, the, the appropriate now, size of the buffer. But now at, at some point of time, 
uh, it was decided that we can't just leave it up to the banks to decide uh, what their, uh, how much buffer they need to have, that there needs to be a regulation for it, that there needs to be a common standard, that we can't just allow a bank to, to decide that, oh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a bit edgier, I'm going to be walking the line, I'm going to be, uh, you know, making riskier uh, decisions regarding how much capital in relation to the assets I will uh, maintain. It was decided that this needs to be regulated, that there needs to be a common standard for it. Why did that happen? Well, actually, it happened because we want to avoid or the community would like to avoid that one specific event in a bank uh, results into other defaults in Cascade because all banks are connected to each other. And probably there is also another purpose, which is the fact that banks are also part of of the way all the economies are working. So and, and without banks functioning properly, then you put uh, mm-hmm. you put the economy of a country of, or even a continent or mm-hmm. the world if, if there is really a serious crisis in, in danger. So yes, indeed, the regulations uh, were developed with a purpose to ensure financial stability, mm-hmm. financial stability around the world. What's the formula? Is there an accepted formula for how much they should keep? If they have this much risk, you need that much capital? That's the purpose of all the regulations that have been developed in, in the past. So actually the Basel Committee has been in, in the forefront in, in this matter. So the Basel Committee was uh, created, I think, in the early 70s. Following a collapse of a German bank, I forgot uh, which bank exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly with the purpose that I mentioned before, so mm-hmm. just to avoid uh, um, a contagion to other banks. Mm-hmm. And it's called Basel because it's in that town in Switzerland. Exactly, yeah. and there were a number of accords, as as they say, uh, setting the capital requirements and other rules that the bank will have to to apply. So and it started with the Basel One Accord, rather basic, where basically the rule was for every loan or asset that you hold with a credit risk, you would you would have to hold eight percent of a risk-weighted asset mm-hmm. amount. So it becomes a bit technical, but in short, it means that you look at your asset, you adjust for the risk. And then you take eight percent of this amount, and this is the amount of capital that the bank needs to hold. Okay, but let's let's make let's take a specific example. Let's say, uh, let's say Matt has taken out a, a mortgage, uh, which in Luxembourg is you know these are huge. It costs a lot of money to buy a house. So you, let's say you bought a million million euro house. Mm. Uh, so you've taken out a million euro loan. Uh, so what you do is you calculate a a risk weighted version of that million euros, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, so so that's going to be less than that million. Well, it depends on the risk weight. In this case, indeed, with a mortgage loan, you may expect a risk weight of about thirty five percent. So it's uh, actually it's about three hundred fifty thousand. But if it was a million million euros to go buy nice cars, then it would be much higher, right? Yes, probably around seventy five percent or something similar. 
So that's the sensitivity to the risk of the of the asset that is reflected in the risk weight. And and so for that, okay. So let's say it's a mortgage. It's thirty five percent. So it's a, that that one million euros that the bank has given Matt is actually three hundred fifty thousand in terms of risk weighted assets. And now the Basel Committee says that you only need to keep eight percent of that exactly as, as a buffer. Exactly. Wow, that's pretty. Uh, that's still pretty risky, I think. But the capital, whatever that eight percent is that the bank has to put aside, what do they put aside? Can, do they buy bonds? Do they have to keep cash? What What does that? Money is fungible, so actually it can be invested in in assets. And the way to actually measure the level of capital of a bank is just to look at the balance sheet. And this is the difference between the value of all assets and the value of all liabilities. And de facto, the value of your own funds or capital will become zero if actually the value of your assets drop to a level just equivalent to the level of your debt. Or even worse, it can go negative, which basically is then the event of default, mm-hmm. where the, yeah, the, the value of your assets do not cover anymore the the value of your debt. So the bank doesn't take the capital and put it in a separate pot and say, I'm not touching that. They're using it. It's cash, it's fungible, and based on the investment that you make, um, well, yes, you can have more or less risk added to your portfolio. Yeah. So that, that's Basel One, which, as you mentioned, was simple. Um, yes, that's <laughs> it's simple for a risk manager. I guess. But then there was Basel Two, and... How did this all develop and why did it develop? Why was there a need for this to get more complicated? I assume they didn't make it simpler. I assume it got more complicated, more refined. What happened? Exactly. So, well, the concept remains the same. So what we have discussed so far is, is still the foundation of, of the capital requirements for banks as set by supervisors. Uh, Basel II was developed uh, to cover other risks. So Basel I was really focused about credit risks. Basel to added other risks and the concept of, of of pillars, three pillars. Pillar one would have set sets basically the minimum capital requirements, so the eight percent, but also capital requirements for the risk like market risk or operational risks. Uh, pillar two is basically the concept by which banks develop their own view about the capital they need to hold and the supervisor comes and looks at uh, this and, and basically form an opinion and may also ask for additional capital based on, on the assessment. And the third pillar is about uh, market discipline and disclosure. The purpose was to force banks to be more transparent about their um, the positions mm-hmm. and how much capital they hold and, and the processes mm-hmm. they have in place to basically force bank to have better behaviors, mm. I would say. Is that, does that bring us to Basel III? Basel III essentially was a follow-up of, of, of the crisis of the years 2007-8 and the need to, for instance, um, introduce uh, indicators and to monitor more closely liquidity. That was one, one of uh, the main changes. Well, how confident are people, uh, well, that's when I say people, how confident are regulators that these are good measures. One of the things about the 2008 crisis was that banks were selling instruments, particularly in America, but all over, that in the end, uh, ratings agencies and regulators didn't seem to understand all that well. 
Was was Basel three an attempt to to rein them in somewhat? True as well. So I just mentioned liquidity, but clearly leverage ratio also came back into the picture. Leverage ratio is nothing else than comparing the amount of the investment without any risk weight uh, compared to the capital. The idea is that if you don't really understand your product or if your models are too complex and, and subject to proxies, or if you cannot really measure the risk properly, then ultimately you may lose the full amount. And the leverage is basically comparing how much in nominal terms you have invested compared to your capital base. So the, so the leverage ratio uh, just takes the amount of capital you have and the m- amount of loans you've given out, basically, and it doesn't, it doesn't do the rate risk-weighted assets. It, it's, it's a more simpler math. Exactly. It's a sort of backstop limit that and banks it, have to... And the reason for that, and the reason for that, is because the the, the public and the regulators did not have uh, enough confidence that banks are good at calculating the risk-weighted assets. Like when you when you said that you know this one million euro mortgage to Matt, that's maybe a thirty-five percent risky asset. So we would calculate that as three hundred fifty thousand. For a more complex product, it would be maybe difficult for a bank to adequately assess whether it's three hundred fifty thousand or whether it should be four hundred fifty thousand, and that gets the whole calculation messed up. True, but I think we we still need to use risk sensitive measures. Otherwise, if you only look at leverage, then you indeed miss the risk uh, mm-hmm. dimension. Now, I think it's basically a combination of both limits based on absolute levels and limit based on uh, risk weights that are themselves based on sometimes models, sometimes complex that indeed need to be I mean, validated, controlled, reviewed, and so on to ensure that they produce uh, sensible figures. So I want to get at who's actually behind this. You know, who's doing this? Who's deciding it? You've mentioned uh, Basel. So that's, that's a reference really to the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. Uh, which is part of the Bank for International Settlements. So who is that? Who's the Bank for International Settlements? Well, the Bank for International Settlements is the central banker of the central banks, as it is usually defined. But what is important is the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, for the purpose of supervision. And it's a committee gathering representatives from various countries around the world, and they decide about principles that should be applied in terms of uh, applied in terms of of supervision, prudential supervision, and also the supervi- the supervision regulation. Sorry. And then it becomes law. Well, not automatically. So the the, the rules set by Basel then must be adopted at national level. Or when we are talking about the EU, there is a layer in between, which is the EU itself, uh, that can issue either directives or regulations. And, but for some other countries, let's take uh, US or the Bank of England, I mean, these are national regulations that are then put in place to translate the, the Basel principles into, into law. But who checks? So we have these, these regulations from the Bank for International Settlements. They're given to the banks. The banks say, thank you very much. Uh, we'll take them into account. In fact, we'll follow them. Who checks that, let's say, a bank in Germany or France is 
as following those capital adequacy rules? This is the role of the supervisor. So again, at the level of the EU, this is centralized, and at the level of uh, the euro, this is centralized at uh, the ECB. The European Central Bank. Yes, right. where they have the single supervisory mechanism. So basically, they perform the task of reviewing um, and supervising the banks that are under their control, the big banks in, in the EU and the Eurozone. Uh, while in other countries, as I just said, for instance, the Bank of England, the Bank of England will be the, the one supervising uh, the, the, the banks in the UK. Are there some uh, places where the regulator is a bit tougher in, 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 in making sure that the Basel rules are followed? And to the same extent, are there some where they're not so True. So it can be at the level of the regulation. It can be at the level of uh, supervision. So, I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes there are some discrepancies between between the way the regulation is applied. But the and purpose... But, but are there other banks that are not following the Basel Committee suggestions or regulations? I mean, the, you mentioned that there are 18 um, sort of... Jurisdictions. Uh, jurisdictions or 18 participants in the Basel Committee. I mean, uh, does that mean that there are some banks and in some jurisdictions that you know they they don't calculate the eight percent. They don't. But there could be some differences between countries. But ultimately, I think in all those countries there is banking regulation in place, mm -hmm. and and banks should should uh, apply the regulation. Otherwise, probably they will not simply get their license to operate. Mm -hmm. One thing I, that we mentioned a little bit earlier, just in passing was credit ratings. Is that any part of, of the capital adequacy? Does a ratings agency look at the capital of a bank and say, you are triple A, you're really good, or you're triple B, you're not so good? Is that a part of that calculation? Yes, capital assessment by rating agencies is, is key in, the, in, the, in their ratings. And, but they have their own methodology, so they can, of course, they know what the regulation is in this respect. They can look at the regulatory ratios of banks, but they usually develop their own uh, metrics and their own assessment to assess if uh, a bank in particular has enough capital. And indeed, depending on how strong the bank is, um, the rating may be higher or lower. There's going to be a Basel IV. Do we know anything that's going to be in it or what, what will happen? Well, they, it's not yet uh, finally disclosed, but for instance, one thing that... Uh, is now on the table is to decrease the reliance on internal models by putting, for instance, flaws to risk weights that would be applied to different assets. So in a way, it's still the same move that we have already observed. Let's try to, in some aspects, simplify rules, or at least to have a common denominator that can be used for all banks. Meaning we're not going to take the word of, of the bank that this is how much their risk is we're going to figure it out for ourselves as regulators? They will continue to look at it, but then when comparing banks, they will make sure that at least there is a flow under which even if a model sounds or looks reasonable, a bank will not go. Well, we're glad to take your word mm -hmm. for this. Uh, regulators might not take the word of banks, but we're glad to have your words on this. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Now we really know all we need to know about capital adequacy.
we know an adequate amount about the subject. No more jokes like that. Why don't you just keep sucking on your Jolly Rancher? I finished the Jolly Rancher. He is no more. This is a tet brulee. Anyhow, we love... Oh, my God. It's awful. It's really... Uh, I think it's burning the inside of my mouth. We'd love to hear from our listeners with ideas for financial terms to include on future episodes of the podcast. Or maybe you'd like to tell us your favorite candy. That seems more like the kind of thing people do on social media, doesn't it? You can connect with me at E-I-B Matt, M-A-T-T. And I'm Alar Tankler at A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. Also, please do subscribe to the podcast and rate us. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, but it's also on Stitcher and other podcast platforms, as well as on our website, the, the EIB's website. Just go to eib.org forward slash podcast. And we'll see you for our next episode on a dictionary of finance next week.